The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. Psalm 149.4 Our good and our holy God, we thank you that you are at work in this world calling a people together. We confess to you, Lord, that we have been afflicted by our sin. We've been marred by our decisions. We've been bound. And God, we are grateful that you have come to beautify the afflicted ones with your salvation. We thank you, God, for your amazing grace, your abundant mercy. We thank you, Lord, that we can sing about that today, that we can pray to you, a God that is alive and loves us. And Lord, we thank you for your word that guides our steps like a light. Lord, as we open your word today to be reminded of the message of the cross, to proclaim it again, we ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask you, Lord, to give us tender hearts that would receive your word like a seed in fertile soil. God, we pray that you would give us feet that would walk quickly to do your will. We pray that you strengthen our hands for our work in this world, that our deeds would be as your very own. And God, we pray that a word of testimony, life, would be found on our tongues. This is our prayer in the strong name of the Trinity. And we pray together saying, amen and amen. Please be seated. This is our second lesson in the sermon series, Beautiful Salvation. We have learned that God is at work bringing beauty out of ashes, that God is at work redeeming us, rescuing us, saving us. As Christian people, we can stand and give testimony to God's saving grace in three very important tenses. We can say, I have been saved because of the mercy of Christ. We can say, I am being saved because of his grace. He's still working on me. And we can proclaim with great hope that one day we will be fully and completely redeemed and we will know him as we are known and we will know him without the shackles of our shame or our sin any longer. Won't that be wonderful? W.T. Connor, a theologian from an earlier generation who left a big imprint on Texas Baptist life said, the Christian then is saved, he is being saved, he is going to be saved. Last week, we spent a good deal of time talking about being saved by the mercy of Christ. And today, our focal text is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is one of those beautiful texts in the Bible that speaks of, of God's ongoing relationship with us, His ongoing grace in our lives, salvation in the present tense. Some theologians refer to this as sanctification. Our good friend R.T. Kendall says that sanctification is the doctrine of gratitude. Because of the abundant grace of God and how he's demonstrated that in Christ, we offer our lives back to him uh, as he continues to work in our lives to make us more and more like Christ. If you've had time to find your, your text, we'll read together beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing 
foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The church in Corinth had it all together. The church in Corinth was strong. It was, it was popular. The parking lots were filled. There were signs and wonders going on in the worship services. People were talking about them all over the place. Pastors from little country hamlets around Corinth were going to Corinth with empty notebooks, going to the conferences, trying to save their careers. Maybe just maybe if I figure out how they're doing it in Corinth, I can go back to my little backwater town and make it work there too. And they went and they tried to learn the secret of the church in Corinth. Everybody was talking about the church in Corinth. They were writing about the Corinthian church in Christianity Today magazine. People were whispering about the church in Corinth. Everything was going well. They were fat and happy, and they had completed all of their renovation projects, thank God. <laughs> the church in Corinth was doing great, only they weren't. Something was rotten down in the bones, deep in the structure. The beautiful book written recently by Fleming Rutledge, The Crucifixion, and she says this, she's observed the success of the church in Corinth, and then she says, Paul, however, sees grave danger ahead because the Corinthians' life is oriented to the wrong center. What were they oriented in? What did they, what did they, what did they throw in their anchor? What, what was the stone holding the anchor of their church? What were they grasping for? What were they reaching for? What were they, what were they hoping for? How were they going about it? They were building their church on the wisdom of humanity. It talked about in this text that Jews seek a sign and, and Greeks seek wisdom. It was basically saying the church in Corinth, uh, they were trying all the religious tricks and all the secular ones at the same time. They were oriented in themselves. And their orientation was wrong and hurtful. The success that they were experiencing was a plastic, fleeting success. And Paul could have celebrated with them. He could have written them a letter. He could have given them an award for being the fastest growing church in the region. 
Instead, he took a pen in his hand and he wrote a tearful letter to them about the rot that was in their bones. And he called them back to the life that is really life. He called them back to the way of the cross. He called them back to uh, the victory that is in Jesus. He called them back to a cruciform pattern of common life that would give them life that is really, really, really living. And the verses we just read together, the, the verses about the wisdom of God and the foolishness of the world and how upside down things really are and why we put the wrong labels on everything. These passages were about the cross. They were about the message of Jesus. And we still have to contend with the fact that we as Christians believe and proclaim that God came among us and we lynched him. And we ask ourselves today, what does the message of the cross mean? Why was Jesus crucified? When we read the Bible from our name on the front all the way to the maps, we discover that Jesus was crucified because of our sinfulness, our brokenness. And then he gave his life that we might have life. He became poor that we might become truly, truly rich. Today, we're talking about the beautiful salvation that has come to us in Christ. And this is not just a concern of eight-year-olds in vacation Bible school. This is a grown-up, every-person concern. Because this is what matters most. And so the question before us today is, how do we live this cruciform life that is really living that Paul calls us to? How can we live that way? How do we live our life contending with our own sinfulness and the abundant grace of God? Today, I just want to remind us of two things, two things that the cross of Christ accomplishes. If you brought those number two leads, you may need them because I want to remind you of these things that matter most. The first thing is that the cross frees us from the penalty of sin. Friends, we were culpable. And the cross of Jesus is, is not totally, but it is about the atoning work of Christ, about a vicarious work that Jesus did for us. When the Bible speaks of cross, of Christ, it talks about Jesus going to the cross for sinners. Paul would say, I am the chief among them. Said that Christ Jesus suffered once and for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Jesus died for you. He died in your place. He died that you might be forgiven of your sins and made right with God. He brought, died to bring you into a relationship with God. He died to free you from the curse that is before those who would shout their no in the face of a loving creator, one so loving that he was the Savior. Years ago, Dr. Garland wrote a commentary, a beautiful commentary on 1 Corinthians. I'm standing in this room in central Texas because of that commentary. I remember sitting with, with a few pastors at Holland Colony Baptist Church, and it was before that commentary was published, and he was just flipping loose leaf pages of that beautiful commentary. And, and I told Meredith, when I go back to school, I'm going to the school that pays that man. I've read that commentary a number of times, and in it is the beauty of the cross of Jesus. 
And listen to this, these words about Christ freeing us from the penalty of sin. He says, The word of the cross brings judgment in its wake and divides humanity into two groups, uh, not based on the traditional categories of race, gender, or status, but instead on their eschatological destiny, uh, their, their future, if you will. One's response to this message reveals whether a person is headed toward immortal horrors or everlasting splendors as C.S. Lewis phrased it. You see, sin and brokenness is dark, ugly business, and it has been cursed by God because it's an enemy of His, of his holiness and against His love for us. God has shouted a great big no over the whole enterprise. And He's offered us His abundant yes. But we are not puppets on a string. He's allowed us to say yes to him or to say no to him. Our opportunity is to say to God, thy will be done in my life or to experience the will of God being expressed against the sin we will not relinquish to him. The cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus his abundant mercy seen on the cross was offered so that we can avoid the penalty of that sin and taste forever the bliss of His grace. John chapter 3, well put together, successful man. A man that everyone looked up to. A man of achievement, of integrity, of clout came to Jesus at night, and he said, what must I do? What must I do to be accepted? What must I do to, to, to walk into the kingdom? What must I do to experience life as God would have it, as, I, as you understand it, Jesus? What must I do? He said, you're Israel's teacher. Don't you understand these things? And he told him the story. He said, don't you remember way back in the, in the pages? Don't you remember way back in those lessons that we all learned when we were kids at the synagogue? Don't you remember those classes at the synagogue where they taught us uh, about Moses and, and about how Moses lifted the snake before the people as God was judging them? And, and God promised them as they looked on that snake and trust that they would be healed. Don't you remember that story, Nicodemus? Do you remember that story? He said, and all those that looked on him they lived. He said, Nicodemus, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Must be lifted up. All those that look in faith and trust will live. From that story, we learn very clearly that God loves people. And it's a radical type of love. And that God gave His one-of-a-kind, unique, only-begotten Son... That whosoever, you remember this verse, whosoever would believe in him, would trust in him, would not perish, but would have everlasting life. God loves, God gave. We trust and believe and we receive life. That's grace. And that is mercy. To those who are perishing, that is foolishness. You don't have to perish you can live. And the author of life has come and told you how. He's written it in blood. 
and proclaimed it on the voices of angels. He is not here. He is risen. He is alive, and you can live as well. The cross frees us from the penalty of sin. We are culpable. He gave his life that we may be forgiven. He has offered us a vicarious atonement. But that's not the end, friends. That's the beginning. Because this cross of Jesus that forgives, this cross of Jesus that frees us from this penalty, also uh, empowers us to overcome, frees us from the power of sin. Rutledge says we are culpable, but also that we are captives. Sin and death, these are agencies, active agencies with a nasty grip on us. And the crucifixion of Jesus uh, was, was a moment in history that frees us from that icy grip on our lives as enables us to live in a whole new kind of way. This is salvation in the present tense. This is God's sanctifying mercy. This is God still working on us. Years ago in the earliest days of this church, uh, B.H. Carroll uh, would often talk to the parents of the church. He loved kids, and he loved ministry to children, and he loved families. Uh, and he would tell them about how to have a life of faith uh, among your children. And he encouraged the use of, an, of a catechism written by, by Brodus. There, there were early Baptist catechisms. Some of you don't know that, but there were. A catechism is a, is a list of questions and, and answers. And you walk through those questions and answers in order to frame and to encourage and to educate and to mold uh, those in the faith. And he, he encouraged those families to go through that old Brodus catechism with their kids. And question, uh, the question number 11 and lesson number 5 was this question. What must we do to be saved through Jesus Christ? And the answer, we believe in Christ. We turn from our sin to love and obey him. And we must try to be like him. This is not works righteousness, but this is an understanding that a life of trust and faith is a life that is lived out in growth and action. It's that Christ that is at work in bringing us to himself is at work to form himself in us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, it said that Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. The cruciform life that Paul was calling the church in Corinth to was a life that celebrated their victory in Jesus uh, and the mercy that was, was set there before them at the cross. But it was also a faith and a community life that called them to pick up the cross of Jesus and follow Jesus as they walked through the world. These things are not antithetical. They, they are like the wings on a dove. They fly. They're alive. In the earliest days of this church, the faith of the kids was grounded in this commitment to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him all the days of their lives. That's a vital faith, and it's a vibrant one, and it is beautiful salvation. It's a beautiful salvation that God would call us back to again and again and again, orienting our life on Christ and Christ crucified ordering our life together on Christ and Him crucified, ordering our hopes and our dreams and our passions on Christ and Him crucified. So how do we do it? 
How do we live this cruciform life? How do we pick up this cross and follow in the steps of Jesus? I'll give you three things quickly. They all start with R's because some of you like alliteration. Normally I use P's, but today it's R's. You good with that? Number one, we can recall. That very next verse, verse 26, 1 Corinthians, it says, Consider your calling. Remember his work in your life. It would do us well, those of us who profess Christ, to regularly remember the moment that it began. That season in our life where we recognized our deep need for him and we cast ourselves into the arms of his mercy. The Apostle Paul had quite a life. He sucked the marrow out of life. He was snake bit and shipwrecked and beat up and cussed and fussed and he might have done his own cussing a time or two. He lived quite a life that called for grit and courage and a sanctified ambition and lots and lots of forgiveness. He needed it and he had to offer it. I think one of the secrets to his greatness is that he absolutely never got over being saved. And a lot of us do. A lot of us come to the place in our journey where we just sort of believe that God's lucky to have us. We're waiting on God to put one of those participation trophies around our neck. Way to go, kid. Thanks for signing up. We don't ever need to get over it. We never need to cease to be amazed at grace. We need to recall. Second thing, if you're going to write them down, is we need to reckon, consider ourselves dead that we may truly live. In that great text in Romans chapter 6, the question is asked, how can we then go on in sin having died to it? This is the odd baptismal identity that Brueggemann talks about. Uh, As we we dip ourselves, we are dipped in the water. It's a symbol of our death, that watery grave. We we pick up our cross and we follow Christ and we live cruciform, forgiving and forgiven lives uh, because we reckon ourselves done with all of that stuff. What stuff? The wisdom of the world and the foolishness of religion. Seeking signs, being wise in our own eyes. We have to reckon ourselves dead to that in exchange for the wisdom of the cross. And the last one is is we just need to repent. That's sort of a worn-out word. We don't use it much anymore, but, oh, it's so life-giving and hopeful. I'm a pretty messed-up dude, and the people I know are pretty messed-up people. And repentance is such a beautiful bath of grace in all of our lives. W.T. Connor, again, we'll finish up with him. He said, we should not think of repentance as being an act performed at the beginning of our Christian life, not needing to be repeated. He said, it's an attitude that belongs to the Christian life as a whole. The initial act of repentance is the beginning of a life of repentance. Again and again, over and over, day by day, we need to bring our life before God and have Him touch us with His mercy and kindness and make us more like Jesus. None of us have room to park and quit and to say, I've grown enough. Not a one of us. As my old English teacher used to say, friends, we're only halfway to Jackson. We've got a lot of growing to do. So today as we wrap this up, there's two questions before us. One, have you been saved? 
You say, man, I didn't think we use language like that or talk like that around here. Couldn't you think of a more sophisticated question to ask? Sorry, no. It's not a sophisticated deal. It's, it's an admission that we need to be rescued from ourselves. Accomplished, put-together man, successful, bright-eyed woman, have you been rescued from yourself by Jesus? If not, you can be. You can be freed from yourself and the penalty of sin. You're culpable, and he wants to set you free. If that's never occurred in your life, if that's not your testimony, you can begin that journey today. He loves you. He loves you so much that he gave. Would you recognize the wisdom of that and receive? Second question, if you say yes to the first, is how's your soul? My friend Mike Street regularly asks me that. How's your soul? I never know what to say. So initially I just say, oh, I'm good, doing pretty good. Staying busy, but doing pretty good. That's a question you've got to think about just a little bit. How are you doing in relationship to your sanctification, to your spiritual growth, to becoming more like Christ? How's your soul? Maybe we go at it like this. We have friends from Bossier City, Louisiana here today. Hello, girls. We're so delighted you're here. If some of y'all go to Bossier City for vacation, go, go, go visit their church and tithe on your winnings. Uh, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. But we're glad that you're here. They're from the Duck Dynasty neck of the woods. You know, you come down a little bit. They're the duck people. I read this week that the duck people are in a little trouble. Some people have discovered that it's not all real. I thought to myself, who did, I mean, who are these people shocked by this? If any of you are confused by this, then I have a deal to make that I only want to share with my closest friends because it's too good to believe. Of course, of course it's fake. I do have friends that think the moonshot is fake and that wrestling is real. Those are the same people disappointed when they figure out that the duck commander is not real. Uh, you know, not all of it. Uh, I was in line at Disney World meeting Cinderella. Some of you know this story. And, and Cinderella, uh, we were greeting all the children. And what kingdom are you from? We're from Toronto. Oh, the kingdom of Toronto. We're from Boston. Oh, the kingdom of Boston. And you, little family, where are you? we're from Waco. She breaks character. Do you know Chip and Joe? <laughs> <laughs> I suspect that's why you girls are here. I don't know. Uh, but you know, they'll write the same thing. It's not all real. Most of us knew that sort of intuitively. You know why? Because our lives and our Instagrams and our Facebooks and our Twitter don't match up either. We all are trying to be reality stars. There's a big gap between what's there and what's in here. Because our soul's not all that healthy. In 1987, Calvin Miller wrote a prophecy, I think. Uh, Calvin Miller was often writing about salvation in the present tense, and he wrote a little book called Becoming. And in this book, in 1987, uh, he was writing about the, the interior life, the innate self, uh, and, and what he called the quantum self, the, the self we put forward for the world to see. 
And this is what he said. He said, the Cinderella syndrome, I've met Cinderella. The Cinderella syndrome is an example of what happens when the quantum self is allowed to exist with little reference to the innate self. Narcissus cares little about what he really is, only how he appears and how he gets on in the world. When the whole society is narcissistic, it must of necessity be plastic. Where automatons, with no real disclosure of themselves, live with their quantum Cinderella side to the camera. They are, in short, only camera people, knowable only as they can be seen. Their innate selves are not treasured, and in most cases, never even acknowledged. Friends, if we're in a world that has to be photographed all the time, if we're living in reality TV and not reality, then we have growth before us. There's growing up to do. How is your soul? Is your life oriented around the cross or something else? God, we thank you so much for being who you are and for the work that you do in our lives. Lord, as we come to a place where we sing out our commitments, we come asking you to stir in our hearts, fresh ones, help us to see those places where we need to grow. Lord, I would offer a prayer for anyone in this room who has never uh, surrendered their life to you. I pray that that can begin even today as they would follow. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and your grace. We pray that you touch us with your spirit. You'd give us a hunger to make you known as we know you, and we thank you for your kindness. Be with us, Lord, as we sing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing our songs and respond as the Lord would have you come.